Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today we're talking cricket. It comes back to the high performance review and one of the reasons that Andrew Strauss is pushing so hard and has done on the recommendations is that you want people to understand the rate of change in the game and he describes them as tectonic plates shifting and who knows in a few years time we might have players contracted to global franchises playing across three or four competitions and released to play international cricket a big part of me thinks that would be really sad if that happens but at the other time if you're a player you go brilliant make hay and earn as much money as you can today's guests are mo bobat performance director at the england and wales cricket board who you've just been listening to there and omar chowdhury chief intelligence officer of 21st group the topic is performance and its fundamental link to the commercial success of sport Mo and Omar's teams worked extensively together on the ECB's new High Performance Review, chaired by former England captain Sir Andrew Strauss. This aims to improve the quality of both the domestic structure and the men's national side, aided by an advisory board including Sir Dave Brailsford and Dan Ashworth, former FA Performance Director. The review has made 17 proposals, each seeking to focus attention on the difficult question of what it takes to win. You can read the review via a link in the show notes. But the performance conversation is often put into a silo and treated separately from the commercial side of sport. And as we'll hear in this episode, that's a mistake. This conversation, more than anything, is about the product of sport. What's the difference between a successful sports tournament, league or team and the rest? How does performance data help create entertaining teams? Is there such a thing as a team's DNA? And what's the commercial value of jeopardy? Can this be engineered without being gimmicky and ruining the product. These are questions which drive everything from fan engagement through to the media rights, income, sponsorship revenue and other forms of investment that are part and parcel of the sports business conversation. The conversation took place at the Clerkenwell offices of 21st Group in London and it was against the backdrop of England's progress at the ICC T20 World Cup currently taking place in Australia. You'll hear us reference a previous podcast with Ed Smith, former chair of England Selectors, recorded at Leaders London in October. And that's available along with 276 other episodes in the unofficial partner back catalogue. Accessible via the website, Apple, Spotify, Google or your usual podcast app. In this conversation, quite often people go to performance and they think, OK, well, this is a Jake Humphrey type conversation where you're talking about, you know, individual performance and whatever and I think it's more interesting than that sorry to Jake Humphrey but I think there's a broader set of issues that we want to get into so that's that's where we're going to come from but I want to start with you Mo what is your job today what's the role and I'm going to ask you a bit on your background and how you got here because I think it's interesting so what's the job uh, well, officially, performance director for the England men's team and pathway. If you, it's quite difficult to position because those sorts of roles bring different connotations and views, and they're positioned differently in different sports. But the simplest way to look at it is if you if you were to overlay it with a footballing equivalent, you've got Rob Key, who's our managing director, who's probably the equivalent in footballing terms of your sporting director, and I'm performance director, which is probably the equivalent of a technical director in football. Like that's probably the analogy that you'd share. But broadly speaking, Rob looks after the, I guess, overseeing and managing the two head coaches and their coaching environments. He fronts up selection. 
he deals with a lot of the first team media facing stuff and he deals with our team England player partnership and central contract bit. So that's kind of his four areas. So my role is summed up by supporting him with all those things in the first instance, particularly as he's new to sports administration. So supporting him with that. And then my direct responsibilities cover our international pathway, which is our Lions team, our under 19 programme and everything that feeds into that, including things like player ID, performance analysis, scouting, all of that. Uh, I oversee science and medicine, uh, so I have reporting into me ahead of performance science and medicine, but that covers physiotherapy, strength and conditioning, nutrition, psychology, and, and so on. And then also all England and pathway ops uh, and operations, including our performance centre. Uh, so quite a broad remit there, my main responsibilities. How do you get a job like that? Uh, well, how did I get a job like that? Uh, it's probably not how most other people will. So I haven't played international or professional cricket. We share a teaching background, by the way. I did my stint. Yeah, so I guess I studied sports science and management at university. I then fell into teaching and literally fell in. I didn't know I ever wanted to teach, but became quite passionate quite quickly about teaching and learning. Uh, teaching was a good fit for me because I did a lot of coaching and the two things fit quite well just in terms of your own diary and some holidays and stuff like that. So I did seven years worth of teaching and coaching and almost like a dual career and then got a job with the ECB in 2011. Uh, initially managing our England under-17 team and then within a year or so became manager of our development programme, so the whole under-19 programme. And then actually at that point worked quite closely with a PhD student of ours, a talent PhD student, and just started, I think, being quite creative with things like selection and talent ID. And it was a safe space at under-19 level because there's no scrutiny behind your decisions and you could be quite creative and do a lot of trial and error. But I thought we did some pretty cool stuff. And then in actually in 2016, when Andrew Strauss came in as MD, he naturally tried to make some changes and look at the department. And he really liked the stuff we were doing down there. He's quite analytically minded. So he kind of said to me, let's extend that player ID work up the pathway, make it half your role. And he sent me the challenge of, in a year's time, let's see if we can grow it even further and connect it to England. And then literally in a year, a year later, 2017, he made me full-time player ID lead. We, we revamped selection recruited Ed Smith you know much of that you know about and actually I think brought England selection into the modern era and then in 2019 I had the opportunity to go for the performance director role went for it and got it and I've done it for three years and I've had two years worth of that being Covid like everybody else so you haven't really been able to do the things you want to do but either side of it I think we've managed to do some things that have been pretty interesting and different. I saw that the, the PhD thing I think it's really interesting. As I understand it, so it was someone doing a PhD and it then skewed it towards work within the ECB, well, it, but it almost became a sort of group project, did it? Well, it, it was an ECB commissioned PhD, so Simon Timpson commissioned it, ah, okay. and it was Ed Barney, who's actually now P Performance Director at GB Hockey. He was the PhD student at the time, and he was basically trying to prove slash disprove various things connected to talent ID, like was scouting even worth doing? Because uh, you know a lot of sports have done it for quite a long time and over in the States done it quite systematically. So he looked at things like scouting, uh, what we call talent testing, so a little bit like NFL combine type measuring and assessing of talent. And he also looked at performance data and whether conventional performance data was worth looking at, whether there was a different way of looking at it. So, so, so he was almost like it was a validity and reliability PhD around those areas. And we found that like a snapshot of what we found was there were some talent tests that were quite predictive and revealing around talent. Scouting was useful if it was done with the concept of multiple eyes and multiple times so that you get validity and reliability through it. Uh, and you turn something quite subjective into something a little bit more objective. 
And then from a uh, performance statistics and performance data perspective, there was definitely value in it, but not the, really the conventional stuff. Things that highlighted adaptability and transition in your data was more predictive and revealing from a talent ID perspective. What does that mean? Uh, so how quickly does a player do something is probably the simplest way to describe it. So instead of just looking at a batter's average, if you looked at how quickly he registered his first score of 60 or more, and if it was within three games, that's quite interesting to pay attention to. And if he then, the frequency at which he backed that score up is also quite revealing. The equivalent for a bowler was how quickly they had their first three-wicket haul, for example. So we started to find some like adaptability measures that were quite interesting and revealing amongst a load of other things, rather than just conventional uh, data. And also trying to add context to data as well. Is that about them feeling comfortable in an environment above the level where they've got permission to perform. Is that what it's getting at? Uh, potentially. I think some of it is just, I think you could look at it across every area. Technically, you're probably just saying a game that can cope, you know, yeah. that can cope with an increase in demand. There's probably the bit around expectation and scrutiny. Uh, you know, the bit that you mentioned there, just feeling comfortable in that environment. I just quite like, I think problem solving is an underrated element of elite sport and someone who can just work things out and go again and, and then the speed at which they back it up, the consistency is also important. So, yeah, there's a number of things you could infer from it. But that that sort of way of approaching data was quite interesting. And we also looked at things like weighted averages and providing context to data that you don't normally get. So the myths of player identification, what are they? What, do, what are the common misconceptions? You quite often hear people say, oh, why do we need all these people? The cream always rises. They'll get the most runs. They'll get the most wickets, and therefore they'll they'll be the best players. Which is presumably, I'm setting you up to say no. It's more complicated than that. But I'm assuming it is much more complicated than that. Yeah, there's probably a number of myths across different areas. There's, I suppose, something that that is probably quite prominent now is this concept of your, your objective sources like data versus your more subjective sources like scouting or observation. Mm. Any view that one of those is the answer is probably a myth because the reality is you probably need the right combination of both and you can move either of those up and down a continuum based on quality. So there's probably a bit of a myth there. An emerging myth is that we should pick on character. Everyone's getting quite excited about that but nobody really understands what that means and how you might objectify something like that actually and how you capture capture situations and contexts. You know, someone could demonstrate character in one situation and then show nothing like it in a different situation. The person hasn't changed but the context has. Uh, so there's a little bit there that needs a, needs a bit further thought as well. Uh, I, I think a different way of answering that question would be the things that I think are important with player IDs, probably two things. You've got your best chance of identifying well if you take a longitudinal approach. So l- look at your asset over a long period of time, not a short window or a short snapshot. One or two games isn't that great. Four, five, six, seven, eight years worth of data or an insight is much more useful. And the second point would be to be rounded and holistic. So you can't just look at technical or tactical. You need to look at technical, tactical, physical, psychological, lifestyle. I think if you take those two principles, longitudinal and holistic, I think you've got a better chance of making good investments because every decision is an investment, really. Omar, I want to just broaden this away from just for cricket. We're going to go back into cricket and talk about the high performance review in a minute. Where are we in this argument using data, RV science, all of that? Just broaden us away from cricket for a moment. Mm. Where are we in the terms of sort of progress of the industry? I think pretty far along. I mean, I've been 
in sports and sport data for 10 years now. And if I think back to the conversations I had at the time, it was <clears throat> very much around scepticism around data. How can it really help us? In what areas can it help us? Is it just on sports science and medicine? Is it actually on recruitment, performance analysis and so on? I think that's come a long way. And I think everyone now accepts there is a role. And I think the big challenge is trying to get the skills into the various teams, organizations, whatever it is, to make the most of it. Um, so everyone knows, everyone's got access to all that data. You'd be balmy not to kind of look at it. But then there is so much, how do you actually make sense of it all? And I think there generally isn't in sport at the moment, the kind of depth of talent as it relates to data science, because it's one of those professions that you can go into other industries and earn a lot more money than you would in sport. Um, and that's why I think there isn't necessarily as advanced as you might think. But I, I, as I say, I think the culture has definitely changed, particularly in football, different ownership groups, different mindsets as it relates to kind of data. And I think that is a, is a big shift. So I think in all sports now, it's, it's kind of an accepted part. And you've got this challenge of building a long-term structure with winning today. And that's the sports, professional sport challenge. And, you know, obviously um, I have to mention it. We're, we're here on the day where Ireland are beating England down in Australia in the 2020. That's just going to, you know, the news, you can see the cycle developing. I guess from your point of view, Mo, the arguments for long-term thinking are always difficult, you know, not just in cricket, in every sport. You get it in football all the time, you know, three games and the manager's under pressure, etc. all those cliches. How do you do that? Have you learned anything about long-term planning within a professional sporting environment? Well, it probably goes back to your first question to me around my role. I think sports are getting their head around, some quicker and better than others, that you need to have some experts that can dedicate their time to the here and now and you also need some experts that can dedicate their time to the longer term and you know myself and Rob Key are doing our jobs well if the two head coaches we've got Brendan McCullum and Matthew Marr have everything they need to focus on the game and series and event in front of them and that they can trust in that we're looking after the medium to long term and it's similarly other sports are doing the same thing it's why we're seeing a rise in sporting directors or directors of football in, in English football uh, and we've been a bit slower than maybe the European uh, European sides to, to take on that type of model but but firstly it's just like focus and time is, is a way that you do mm. that people need to have that role clarity uh, but the reality is the two things collide and, and it isn't that straightforward uh, you've got to be clear on what success looks like and what you're judging yourself on so you don't you don't get too high when you win and too down when you lose and you understand whether you're on track or not so you know the emotional roller coaster that goes with sport that you know because we all love it so much you, you've got to operate within a relatively narrow bandwidth of those emotions to still make really smart and rational decisions and the question for both of you before we, we talk specifics is is the transferability you mentioned simon timpson i think he's an interesting figure in this because he's someone who and you put me right but he's he's he was team gb i think he was the lta and now he's at man city is that right yeah, he is now. He's performance director at Man City, but he was, he was GB skeleton. Came over to the ECB to run our science and medicine department, and actually set up something that didn't exist before. Spent some time sorting out our development pathway actually as well, and then we lost him to UK Sport PD there. Oversaw certainly Rio Olympics, I think, but a little bit of London Olympics onto LTA and then onto Man City. Yeah, so it is transferable. His, uh, you know, the, the the Simon Timpson example is that what you're finding in cricket, whether it's an 80-20 thing or whatever the ratio would be, but there is a, there is generic information and, and you can take what you've learned from the ECB and, and move it to another sport. That's that's proven. Well, I think so. We do a lot of knowledge sharing. I spend a lot of time with other sports, whether it's football or even any of the Olympic sports or even sports overseas. And 
yeah, there's so much common ground. You're typically trying to do similar things. Some sports will have you covered in a few areas. You've got them covered in a few areas. Then most of you are making the same mistakes. You know, that's the reality of it. So, yeah, very much so. I think it's difficult to answer that question by looking at an individual in isolation because sometimes it's contingent on who are the people around you. So I'm sure Simon would say that his ability to do his job effectively at Man City is contingent on the dynamics around the director of football, his chief operating officer, the chief exec, the manager. You know, so it's the combination of people. And if you're adding a diverse and different and expert perspective, then I think it can really it can really sort of magnify your impact. Okay, okay. right. Uh, Sorry, yeah, you go. Uh, and on that, and I, if I think about it from our world, on data and analytics, it's, it's almost surprising how much overlap there is between sports. So our heritage in football and golf, two of the kind of, I don't know what you call them, the kind of marquee metrics in those sports, XG and strokes gained, on the surface might seem like very different metrics, but actually the methodology that sits behind them, this idea of, creating a context-adjusted expectation of what you would do from a certain area of the pitch or, or course or whatever, and then evaluating yourself relative to that is, is kind of fundamental. So a lot of the models that we build are based on the same kind of framework, and then it's the same type of thinking that could be applied to all sports. It's interesting. I mean, XG is a good example of this, where this conversation, which can be very, very narrow and, and you know, inside baseball, is suddenly it's all it's blown up, isn't it? And people are talking about XG in the pub, you know, and they're quoting data sources and, and all of that. But I'm wondering what the implication of that is. Yeah, well, I think the first one is trying to make, set, is asking the so what of any kind of metric that comes out. And that's been a big issue with XG, where it's been used in so many different ways. Fundamentally, I think the biggest use for a metric like that is understanding whether you've been lucky or unlucky. So understanding underlying performance. A lot of people use it in the context, is this striker a good finisher or is this player kind of constantly getting in the box? And it has those purposes, but the biggest kind of so what of that is that underlying performance. And, and actually that has huge implications about how you make decisions in this example as a football club, whether you change the manager, whether you need to overhaul in the summer and so on. I mean, you get you get sort of the extreme example. XG has become almost like a sort of one of those things in the sum where you're rating players, you know, the journalists, but, oh, you know, two, five, seven or whatever. It's XG, you know, and it's like it becomes a hammer mm. by which your data then is then represented and used to punish players. Well, I think in many ways it's, it's really useful. It, I, it's, I don't know if it's the right term, but it's the democratisation of insight, isn't it, really? And actually, if we end up having an audience or a followership that thinks a bit more analytically and a bit smarter about performance I think it's a good thing. Let's talk about the high performance review why why was it necessary and what was it just take us inside that process. Yeah so I suppose crudely it was a big part of the post ashes fallout is the the truth of it Uh, and before I get to the high performance review it's worth just thinking a little bit around that post ashes period because immediately after that we had an internal review Uh, so the England men's performance team and department uh, reviewing our planning, our processes, and that was led, commissioned by the chief exec, Tom Harrison, but led by Andrew Strauss. And that obviously resulted in some change. So we had a change of cricket leadership. So Ashley Giles and Chris Silverwood, so MD and head coach, uh, departed uh, as an example. And obviously that's always tough. And that was a combining of Silverwood's role. Yeah, so that happened in the, probably the six or nine months before that, that Ashes. So quite a lot of change there, which is always tough for the individuals in particular, but also the department. We we had an interim leadership put in place, so Straussy came in as MD, with me supporting him, Paul Collingwood as a, a sort of interim head coach. And then eventually we've got to a new model where we've got Rob coming in as MD and two head coaches. So actually one of the changes that came out of it was this concept of 
specialisation or separation of formats and the acknowledgement that certainly for England cricket and the schedule it might be something we get onto a little bit later but this the schedule international cricket schedule for us is so demanding that you can't have one person leading both things anymore it's just you know, you know it's not feasible so for the acknowledgement for us internally that we've got three performance domains we've got the test environment the white ball environment and the pathway so that was probably the big thing that came out of it internally and then coming back to your question I suppose the other bit of it was a more broader or external facing high performance review uh, not just looking at the department and the team itself and I suppose that came not just as a consequence of the Ashes fallout but you know looking into and, and Straussy led this looking into England performances over the last 40 years and in particular Test cricket but looking over the last 40 years and it's fair to say that we've had periods of success you know 2005 Ashes probably our Test cricket 2010 to 12 where we went to number one in the world there was a period 2018-19 where our results in Test cricket were excellent and went unnoticed, probably. And then a couple of global events, you know, World Cup, T20 World Cup in 2011, whatever it was, and then obviously 2019. So we've had periods of success, but never really been able to sustain anything to the point where we've been number one in the world in Test cricket for only 12 months over that whole 40-year period, which is nowhere near enough, given our resource. So I suppose the High Performance Review set out to look at more systemic contributors to high performance rather than just depending on what I would describe as coach and captain chemistry, which is where we've, I think, achieved our success in the past. You know, you look at the likes of Morgan and Strauss as a combination or even Flower and Strauss as a combination. We've had good chemistry and we've managed to do things, but it's not really been systemic. So the High Performance Review was looking at how do we have more deliberate success? How do we, is it systemic? And it looked at the culture of performance more broadly across the English game. Looked at things like funding, and that's quite a big area, obviously, but funding model across the game, competition structure and design, uh, the international talent pathway and the role that that plays. But even England, England performance environment and playing style, all those things were kind of in scope. Uh, and long story short, we got to a point where we had, we, we arrived at 17 recommendations, many of which we can crack on and make some progress with, and we're working through that now. But a couple quite meaty items and they're things that the game needs to give a bit of thought to and we'll, we'll need to vote on just based on governance structures alone. Things like domestic structure and domestic schedule are, are things that don't just sit in mine or Rob's department. They are things for the game to, to decide on. So that's the bit that's playing out at the minute that you're probably hearing and reading quite a lot about. Is there a way through that, the, just the last bit? Because the, the, again, following the story of the, the review, quite often the counties, the cliche is the counties are an obstacle to innovation and progress. Is that a fair framing? Uh, I suppose if I answer that in a in more indirect way, I think what we're probably seeing across sport, maybe even politics, and that definitely isn't my area of expertise, <laughs> but we're seeing rate of change and the need for innovation is is probably accelerating at a rate that we haven't experienced in many other areas or generations. But decision-making governance structures and processes I don't think are equipped to do it as agile or as flexibly as it needs to be done so if you take something like high performance and English cricket as an example there's a number of things that we think are slam dunk recommendations from a high performance perspective but the people who own those decisions might have a slightly different perspective and or the way you arrive at a decision can take some time and is fraught with politics so I think that's true across sport, you know, whoever you speak to. Uh, and mm. again, politics, as I said, as well, as an example. So I think we're seeing two things slightly at odds with each other. You know, an evolving game, an evolving landscape, 
and commercial-related pressures and challenges. You know, if you look at international cricket and even domestic cricket, but on an international level, if you look at franchise competitions, ICC global events, future tours programmes, a player's earning potential and capacity, all those things that are changing exponentially overnight, our decision-making structures around our domestic game are just, I think, out of, you know, out of sync with that. Uh, and I think that's the challenge that we've got. Yeah, you can make a very strong argument that cricket is changing faster than any other sport at the moment. Yeah, You've got... Tim David's often held up as this example. He's in the Australian World Cup squad, never played a first-class game, you know, done very well in domestic league. He's got an IPL deal, did very well there. There is a world, you know, in five, ten, however many years, where where players take completely different pathways to get to the top. And part of this review is to try and understand... A, not necessarily to rail against that, um, but to understand it, make sure that there's still access to talent for test cricket, which is still fundamental to the English game, fundamental not just from a kind of heritage point of view, but from a commercial point of view. Mm. Uh, but then also accept that there are going to be players that don't go through the, those traditional pathways as well. And and that, you know, it, we're talking about a county system that's 100, 150 years old here that is having to adapt to that. And they have done some adaptions, but there's, there's more to do. People who don't know cricket think it's a conservative game. But it has got undergone more change, and you hear every sport saying we're trying a 2020, or we are, you know, we would love to do something like a 2020 of our game, an IPL of whether it's rugby or women's football or whatever. These these are innovations that have come out in cricket, which are are market leading. You mentioned there about the politics of it, getting progress through from where we are now. How much of the review do you think is going to meet real life? Is going to actually impact real change? Well, if you simply looked at 17 recommendations and which of those will will, it be, will we achieve meaningful progress, I think across most of them, I think we will. But not every recommendation is equal in weight and size and you know magnitude and impact. Two of the biggest ones are the ones that are being debated most heavily. So they're, they're the ones that, you know, sat where I'm sat, you get a bit nervous about because you want to see it shift in the direction, you want to see some progress, but the decision-making is, you know, to all intents and purposes out of your hands. So... I think we can have meaningful impact. We might not achieve the potential of the recommendations of review. That might be the truth of that. Uh, and we might have to adapt accordingly then. You know, so again, just speaking to Andrew Strauss yesterday, depending on the decisions that the game makes, we might have to adapt some of the other recommendations. You know, that's, we've got to remain agile, got to remain flexible. For example, if the domestic structure didn't and the schedule didn't deliver the amount of best versus best competition that we feel is a prerequisite, we might have to think about a different way of achieving that. Do we have to take a more centralised approach to some of that? So we're going to have to adapt and react because we can't compromise on the on the mission, which is to be number one in the world across formats and to sustain that. So assuming you're still believing and steadfast in that mission, we might have to adapt again on some of the other recommendations. That's the reality of it. Uh, but just going back to one of the points you made, you're right, cricket has innovated quite well, actually, if you compare us to a lot of other sports. I think we're, we're finding that we're at a point now where that innovation is also now meeting tradition. And, we, and we're getting people, typically with any debate, in two camps, aren't we? And that's, again, reminds you of politics and other mm. things, you know, where you've got a, a binary position and the reality is probably neither of those extreme positions are right. It's where do we achieve that middle ground? And it's getting the game to have really objective, rational and non-selfish discussions around what's best for the game moving forward because it won't be our game. We'll see the consequences 10 years down the line. Yeah, we've, we've been involved in a few of these like change projects, mm. whether it's in 
in football around league restructures or, or this in cricket. And I think one of the big challenges, one of the things we tried to set out at the start of this review process is can you get people aligned around a common vision? Uh, and that actually is the almost the hardest bit. Like the ideas and everything mm. else that comes with it, actually you often get nodding heads or it's quite easy to come up with them. But alignment around a common vision and being able to say, this is how this recommendation ladders up to that is that's really, really hard. Uh, and often you do get people nodding along to the vision, but then you get into the detail and they revert back to type. Um, and we saw that again, like the, the vision that we tried to set out at the start of this process is, can England become the best team across all formats within five years? And that is a vision that clearly the ECB holds. And I think most of followers of English cricket would believe in fans or even a lot of the counties. But then when it comes down to the kind of finer details of the implication of that, that's when you begin to get, you see some of the kind of vested interests. This gets to formats very quickly, this conversation. And just just touch on that, because I think some of the, the most interesting work, uh, Omar, that you've done and, and the team here have done is is built a bridge. And I, I recommend people genuinely to sort of look at the work you've done in the past about the bridge between formats, performance and the commercial bit, which is quite often the bit that opens doors quite quickly and we know that you know if if you can make a commercial argument quite often that that's becomes more compelling i want you to just do that for a moment test cricket seems to me in a in a world where players are looking at ipl contracts they're looking at 2020 leagues around the world they're looking at a different future for themselves test cricket in this country and a few others remains commercially hugely important so just try and walk me through yeah. What you know. Yeah. So I guess the way that we think about the world of sport is that there's been huge emphasis on commercialization of sport in the last 15, 20 years. So just trying to extract yield from the products that you already have. And we think there's an opportunity to better optimize the product, the sport itself. And we break that down into three areas, so quality, jeopardy and connection. I suppose the high performance review is very much around quality. And if, if we go down that thread... As you say, test cricket, hugely important um, for the ECB and uh, the kind of revenues within cricket in general. That's filtered through all the way down to, to grassroots of the game. Sky don't want an uncompetitive England team. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, Sky obviously took over English cricket 2005, 2006. Every Ashes since then has been very competitive, really interesting cricket. It's been really interesting to think of a world where Sky had the rights to the Ashes in the kind of 15, 20 years prior because they were not competitive at all and they wouldn't have been valuable as a contest because people would have switched off after one or two tests. So it's fundamental that English cricket has quality uh, and is consistently competitive um, in in the world stage. And so the performance review essentially seeks to address that. Like fundamentally, it's trying to ensure the long-term health um, of the sport. And so we're looking at things, we're trying to look at things around the county structure, how that optimises the progression of players through that pathway make sure you have the best quality players that can play for test cricket and that test cricket is attractive and that kind of you have that self-fulfilling cycle of of a sport being able to kind of replenish itself with with talent Um, and then you have the other pillars that we talk about which is jeopardy uh, which is really about making sure that competitions are exciting have genuine uncertainty um, of outcomes which um, is a big issue for example in in European football um, at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, it's linked as well um, to, you know, this is why part of the reason T20 cricket has been successful. A lot of people point to the fact that, you know, it's all about the sixes. That's what people enjoy. But actually, it's the uncertainty of outcomes. That's what people, the fact that Ireland could be England today, mm. 
that's you know jeopardy, uh, and so that might come through competition formats or sports formats. And finally, connection. People need to care, and this is the most, I suppose, nebulous area of it. But again, trying to create the narrative, trying to make sure that competitions are are interesting, that that there are you can understand them throughout, um, which is you know perhaps an issue with the county championship. You know, mm-hmm. the, there's a kind of slightly opaque point scoring system. Not everyone plays each other twice. All these kind of things, which are issues with the integrity of um, of the competition, um, and so yeah, there, there's there's a number of different factors that um, you need to be able to look at, and all of them protect the long-term health of the sport um, beyond just trying to commercialise it to the inch of its life. So, if Test cricket is commercially central to the ECB, how does that impact your job? Do you is there a incentive then to to ensure that the England Test team have a pathway of players that are going to be winning tests against Australia and India over the next 10 years. Obviously there is, but there's always an opportunity cost in terms of that question, in terms of talent. Yeah, very much so. Uh, If we go back a few years, well, I suppose that's the current model, but if we go back a few years, you know, much of what we're talking about there is why the 100 was was initiated and, and created. Because, you know, as Omar's described there, really, for... If we talk about English cricket, England, the England men's team playing at home on Sky, the revenue associated with that equates to about 70%, if not 75% of all of the revenue in the game in this country. That's a very skewed commercial model. And so the setting up of the 100 was to diversify that income stream a little bit and make it a little bit more future-proof because if Test cricket around the world took a nosedive and it wasn't as valuable as that, it would leave the game in this country vulnerable. So regardless of whether you're a fan of the 100 or not and people sit in either camp, I think the commercial value there is, is worth paying attention to. And that's that could easily get forgotten when you do something like a high-performance review and people get into the weeds of a schedule and match days and all that sort of stuff. Uh, from our perspective, Test cricket is incredibly valuable for that reason. Also, historically, the grounding in it and what it represents for, for England probably other big nations cricketing nations like Australia and India as well it feels really important but we are you've got to pay attention to what's happening around the world with test cricket it isn't as well followed in all nations so you can't help but be a little bit nervous about that uh, you know who, who knows what test cricket's going to look like in 20 years time will it, will it be like the Ryder Cup mm. will England play Australia every couple of years and nothing else like who knows mm. I hope not but you know anything could happen but for us, yeah, going back to your question, absolutely, making sure that the product, you know, even I don't like that phrase, but the product on the field is as high quality as possible, we believe is really important because it's the thing that will drive all the things that Omar's talking about there and will keep that value in and keep protecting and future-proofing the game. And again, that's another one of those things that's probably been slightly lost as we get into the debates at the minute around domestic structure and domestic cricket, that you want people to buy into the higher purpose that Omar explained you want them to do it for the right reasons, but even if they can't see that, you'd hope they see the commercial reasons. In some cases, people might not pay attention to either of those and they get lost in their own context. And you're trying to make sure that people have that balanced view going into the debate. Mm. You see, you've seen the impact as well. In, in women's football recently, England winning the Euros will probably have a very long-term effect and it shows the impact of, of winning the Euros. Like if, if England had... I was at the the... Spain quarterfinal in, in Brighton where England very nearly went out perhaps we're looking at a completely different landscape here of, of mm. what women's football looks like and they've, you know obviously they got the appointment of the head coach right they um, you know the WSL is growing and so on but it needs to be sustained over a period of time and that that win has given them a big 
big platform to go off, but it needs to be sustained over that period of time. And there's a clear parallel with, with English cricket, where in 2019, you look at the participation numbers for the ECB, where with that World Cup win, with the Ben Stokes innings, all that had a massive impact on the popularity of the game in this country. So again, performance is so fundamental to that. So engineering that, you know, so we all want, I'm a cricket fan, grew up playing cricket. It was culturally much more central to my life than it is to my child's life. So, but that's part of modern life. So that there's that argument, which I'm not going to spend any time on. But you mentioned there women's football, rugby, domestic rugby is another case study. And this is me, my personal view here is that I think that women, women's football in the UK or around the world could easily sleepwalk into becoming like rugby with all of the challenges that that brings. And you know what they are, they're competitive imbalance, professionalisation, which when you present it one way, no one can argue against it. But actually what it does is distort the marketplace for talent. And again, the rich get richer and, it, it, and bad things happen. Take us out of cricket for a minute. What does... The engineering of Jeopardy always comes with a bit of... Oh, this feels like that last race in Formula One mm. where they, the, the, the race director sort of said, yeah, let's have a race, you know, let's, let's fuck everything up, just, you know, because I just want a more excited... We all want to, we want racing, which again, I can, I can, it's a plausible argument, but it's not fair fundamentally. What do you think about that? Because these decisions that are going to get made over the next sort of couple of years are going to have a very long-term impact but across lots of different sports i'm never i'm just to finally finish off i'm completely against closed leagues until someone talks me out of it <laughs> i think i'm i think i'm in a similar camp to be honest i, I think yeah I, I, women's football is a, is a great example of something that could um really not seize the moment because of you know the the it's really interesting as you sit there's not been a draw yet in the women's super league this season which is extraordinary we're i think five rounds of matches in there's not been a draw wow. and the reason for that is because there's just an imbalance in in the, you know most games are between the top three or four against the bottom half of the so league. This is why I like hanging out with you, Omar, because you just come out with these little, little things that <laughs> little I'll gems. steal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll go nick and impress someone else. <laughs> and, and and actually, you know, I, I've been trying to and wanting to watch more women's Super League games this season, but I, I was late to watching, I think, Arsenal-Liverpool on the weekend, and Arsenal already 2-0 up. And it's like, well, I, there's no tension in that, and there's no, there's no excitement in it. And... So how you resolve that issue, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go about it. Um, you know, whether it's salary capping, whether it's playoff formats, whether it's, um, you know, draft systems or, or, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, on this specific case, I think women's football is in, in a particularly dangerous moment. And this is what a lot of the cricket leagues have done very well. If you take, you know, the IPL, the hundreds uh, and, and all the ones that, that are cropping up, they've all been able to maintain that competitive um, balance and you've had um, owner of Rajasthan Royals before on this on this program. Yes. You've spoken you know, how that is absolutely central to to the IPL. So the biggest challenge I think European sport has is that it's based on even women's football to a degree is based on hundreds of years history. Because you talk about these clubs, you know that okay they may not have had women's teams for a long period of time, but they've got history dating back 150 years or so. And and to create something there that is fresh and new is very very challenging. The feedback of the hundred. I watched it as a cricket fan, and bits I liked, bits I didn't like, and I was expecting that, frankly, both as a media thing, but also a, a you know at, at the event. What was your reading of it? What's been? How do you think it alliterate over over time? Well, my view, even before the hundred actually launched, like what, what you know, 
just before the first year of the competition. My my view on it is whenever you get a concentration of talent, I'll be quite interested in it. Uh, mm. We could get the best players in the world to come and have a net together and I'd probably watch it. You know, they don't have to be playing in a game. So I think if you get that concept of the best players playing within amongst the other best players, I think there'll be a, a, you know, a proportion of people that will want to watch that. And I certainly did. So I went into it with that concept. Uh, there's obviously the debate around did it need a new format? Could we have done a version of that with the T20 format? All of those things are out there, as we know. Uh, I think... The novelty was probably quite important, actually, and something being a bit unique and different about it was probably quite important. We might find moving forward that the fact that it has a point of difference could end up being quite commercially powerful. Uh, I think people originally thought that, well, what's the point in doing it if they don't play internationally? So people thought that point of difference was going to be a barrier or an issue because the vision they had in mind was adoption. So will the international game adopt it? Will other nations adopt it? That was an initial thought process. I think that's probably been forgotten. And it might be that point of difference becomes value, actually. Might be. I don't mm. know that that's the case, mm. but it might be that. Uh, certainly talking to people at the IPL and others, there's a heavy level of intrigue in the 100 because it is different. It's not just another one of those T20 comps. And as as we saturate the market, like there's a T20 competition everywhere now, what's going to make one competition different or unique relative to another one so it retains value? Well, the IPL has it has a march on everything else because of the history of it, but also the finances attached to it, the ability to attract the best players and coaches. It is without question a best v best environment. So you know they, they have a real point of difference. You could argue that a lot of the other competitions, other than the hundred, are a bit the same. Your career at the ECB is, you know, the the IPL preceded that. But I'm just I'm interested in the impact of the IPL on all other forms of cricket because in the sports business conversation, people always go to the IPL and say. Fundamentally, it was set up to succeed because it copied bits of the NFL and, and you know, you had franchises and you had drafts and all of that. What's been the impact, you think, on your job of the IPL, just the rise of the IPL? Well, firstly, most people would expect me to talk about challenges and barriers, of which there are some, but I, I typically look for opportunities. So there's been loads of good stuff that's come out of it. I think franchise cricket more broadly has done a lot of what I would call the, the player development gap bridging. So typically there's a gap between domestic cricket and international cricket. And in in white ball terms, franchise cricket has done a lot of that cap bridging. Some of our best players have gone off around the world, played under pressure in big stadiums with extra responsibility against other good players and you've got to deliver and they've got better as a result of that. Uh, so I think that's a benefit, the gap bridging. I remember Ed's, Ed saying at the, the, the leaders' event about using Joffrey Archer as an example in terms yeah, of just exactly the data that. set from the IPL, it was, was much more provable or, or Absolutely, yeah. yeah, exactly that. So if you look at most first investments, so the first time you pick someone, if they're debuting, there's a heavy amount of prediction there and, and in some cases guesswork. Uh, and the example Ed gave was that actually the evidence stacked up quite strongly and the context you were observing Joffrey in and the data you were taking wasn't that different to international cricket so it makes the prediction easier if you're making that judgment watching someone playing t20 blast that's a harder prediction to make it's not impossible but it's harder so yeah exactly that so so i think i think that's you know a real benefit the gap bridging from a development perspective but also id and selection without a doubt that's helped uh i think you know in the same way we don't have that same red ball gap bridging 
So that's where things like the Lions programme comes in from an international pathway perspective because we need to do something that bridges a gap between domestic cricket and international cricket. I suppose the biggest challenge it's providing, but again, you try and look for the solutions in it, is just, just managing a player, managing their workload, their performance, their development, their rest. Uh, you know, we've just announced this, this week a, a Lions squad for the winter, which for those... You know, listeners who don't know what that is, that's kind of like our B team or our development program. Now, gone are the days where you can just select a Lions squad because you think it's the next best squad. Like you just cannot do that anymore. Like I've been having conversations with players and counties, and in some cases franchises, for the best part of three months to work out what's in a player's best interest, where are they going to be at what time in the world, how might you influence a player around what opportunities they should take or not take in the winter, mapping out their program, and then looking at all the performance bits of it. Okay. What does that mean from a, a strength and conditioning perspective? What does that mean for their nutrition and their lifestyle? Like all of those things, it's, it's added a real layer of complexity to managing players. And therefore, things like, if we come back to the high performance review, things like central contracts become quite important levers because the element of control you have over a player, if they're contracted, is very different to someone who doesn't. It's just conversation and influence. So, again, it comes back to the high performance review. And one of the reasons that Andrew Strauss is pushing so hard and has done on the recommendations is that. You want people to understand the rate of change in the game, like we talked about earlier, and he describes them as tectonic plates shifting. And you know, who knows? In a few years' time, we might have players contracted to global franchises, playing across three or four competitions, and released to play international cricket. Mm. A big part of me thinks that would be really sad if that happens. But at the other time, if you're a player, you go brilliant. You know, like make hay and earn as much money as you can. Why would you stop anyone doing that? So. It's quite an interesting time for cricket for all of those reasons. There's lots of upside. I think you know there's probably no better time to have been a professional cricketer. That's the truth. So you've, you've got to adapt with that as a national governing body. And you've got to find a way to get your best players on the park. And there's loads of different levers you can try and pull. I remember talking to Owen Morgan in 2006-7. And he must have been 16, I'd have thought. Obviously, I was working, I was working with the Irish Times. And he was a, you know, a young superstar in the making but was just about coming into the Ireland team. And he said, and something that sort of stayed with me, I said, what, you know, how do you see your career developing? And it was 2020. And 2020 had only been, I think, 2003 yeah. when it was launched. So it was only a few years afterwards. But already his map was pretty much what it turned out to be. <laughs> you know, it was, 20, it was a, you know, a, a global superstar in the, in the white ball game. Um, is that the player's lens? Do you think if I'm a if I'm a talented teenager, that's my career route, or does it still come yeah. down to you know he's going to be a you know an opening bat because his technique isn't up to you know he's not a slogger in white ball cricket? Yeah, the cliches. It's it's some players' goal and vision and, and ambition, but not every player is probably the way I'd answer that. But we're seeing an increasing number of players that will have that mindset and that view you know there's examples of players that you know, take someone like a Will Smead who's a Somerset player making a name for himself in franchise cricket and T20 cricket doesn't really play much or, or a huge amount of red ball cricket for his county not to say he hasn't got red ball skills or qualities but, but he doesn't do that and actually he could have a purely white ball career you look at someone like Liam Livingston you know we've been quite brave picking him for a test series in Pakistan he hasn't played a red ball game all year uh, partly that's a question around surely the schedule can't be right if that's the case but if you move away from that for a minute and just look at him 
why would someone stop him trying to earn the money he wants to earn from playing in competitions around the world? Uh, and if that's how he wants to specialise and focus, so be it. But interestingly, when you speak to Liam and say, do you want to play test cricket? He says he does. But how does he fit it into his programme? That's a problem. That's a great example of coming back to the High Performance Review, a problem the game needs to get their head around. One of our most talented players wants to play across formats. He might not be able to play every game of cricket in front of him. But the schedule's not allowing him to do that right now. We can bury our heads in the sand and say it's all okay, or we can try and do something about that and adapt. So, so there's that. The, the other way I'd look at that question, if, if we get slightly into sort of performance psychology, uh, I think you're always going to have a group of you're going to have a, a talent pool of players that are well suited to Test cricket, because typically as humans, if we it's quite a binary way of looking at it, but our relationship with risk is different, and some players who like embracing risk fit quite well in a white ball environment and some people who are slightly more risk averse by personality fit quite well in a test environment and that's a very very crude psychological profiling uh, the, the analogy we sometimes use is some might see the cheese some might see the cat <laughs> and and if that's the analogy that you look through you're always going to have a group of cricketers who like playing red ball cricket so it's interesting that's a psychological framing rather than a technical one the classically trained opening bat is never going to be a white ball superstar. Well, I, I would I, I would say technical change isn't that difficult at right. all. Uh, I think fundamentally, I think it's probably easier to have solid red ball basics and adapt to white ball cricket than the other way around. But there might come a point where the white ball game becomes that far removed from red ball cricket that that isn't the case. But I think right now, red ball basics can stand quite well in white ball cricket. The other way around can be quite tricky. You know, but that might shift. But but I would say that the psychological stuff precedes the technical. Uh, for me, you know, the reason we might see someone like a Dom Sibley play the way he plays, and you might think he's not suited to a white ball game. People might quickly go to well, his technique doesn't allow it. I would argue his mindset is the thing that's different, and it's what gives him his super strength as a Test cricketer, but might present some challenges as a white ball cricketer. As an example, there'll be there'll be dozens of other players. So I would say the psychology is far more important than the technique. Moan is team have done some really interesting research around what it takes to win, which has become this kind of all-encompassing phrase in a lot of sports around performance, you know, trying to understand what are the key factors that are required in order to win. And it's really interesting reading the stuff um, that uh, and most presented, what, what they've done, where it focuses on some of the technical skills and it's not necessarily, um, yeah, they're, they're things that clearly can be learned, can be developed, um, and, ca- and some of them are very clearly transferable between red and and white ball and I think again it, it to, to the point around the review having that fundamental understanding of skill sets is just such a that's not the type of thing that makes headlines it's not the type of thing that mm. you know stirs conversation after an Ashes defeat but it's research that needs to be done in whatever sport that you're doing in order to have success I know it's something that England football um, so when Dan Ashworth went in at the FA they did a lot of research on what does it take to be an international footballer? What kind of milestones do you need to hit? What kind of playing styles and so on? And that has helped as part of the work the Premier League have done on P to help develop a, a much stronger England team. So again, going back to what Mo was talking about earlier, very easy in the wake of an Ashes defeat. I say very easy, obviously it wasn't very easy, but the, the media pressure often leads you to make changes in personnel, but it's actually having that fundamental reflection on the whole system that is crucial. I remember you making a point about this generation of superstars. So you, Coley, Williamson, Root would be in. You know, would be the three that I would go to. They prioritise red ball. That's how they define their careers, and you know, and whether or not the next generation will do the same. So it's almost like 
Test cricket needs the, the best players in the world to still believe in it and want to develop their, you know, have a career defined by it. The other question I had when you were, you were both talking there is about, back to the performance review, is about DNA. Quite often, again, the story of. Is part of it saying we want England to play in a certain way? Is there a DNA? You hear this in rugby. A lot of football coaches and managers go in. I'm a Spurs fan. I hear this a lot. I know you're an Arsenal fan. So, you know, this won't go down. But I've heard manager after manager come in and say, we play with flair, we play with, you know, and I can reference lots of teams over the years which had almost no flair, you know, with it, but that seems to be the, you know, the story of the of the team and the club. I'm wondering what England's is and whether it can be consistent over the different formats. Yeah, uh, as it happens, I'm going to the Spurs game tonight. I've been punished by watching <laughs> a Spurs game tonight, uh, which I'm actually looking forward to to see their new stadium. Uh but look, I think that that concept of DNA is quite interesting because it 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 brings into thought two things like playing style slash strategy, but also there's a little bit there about cultural identity as well. And I think I haven't got any evidence to back this up, but it's quite an intuitive feel. But having worked for England cricket for eleven years and done work across other sports, I think English sports teams find it quite hard to have a recognisable identity. Maybe harder than some other teams do. Uh, that might be true across football and rugby as well, but certainly from a cricketing perspective, we spent quite a lot of time talking about culture and identity, as a lot of sports do, and it's quite hard, actually. So so that does have an impact on something like an identifiable DNA to a degree. But that's why, why do you think that is? Uh, well, there could be something about British society. It could be something about one of our strengths as a nation, I think, being such a multicultural and diverse society, which I think probably is the bit of our identity we should tap into. And it's certainly the thing that Owen Morgan tried to do with our 2019 World Cup team. He recognised that if you looked around the changing room, you had a mix of state school, private school, some people who were born in New Zealand, some who were born in the Caribbean, some who had heritage in this continent. And actually, he, he went really hard on actually got a group of mature adults in here and we all bring diverse perspectives and we're stronger for it so actually that's how they found identity and I think that's probably the bit we should because it's the most obvious connection to British society but I think it's very different to an all black uh, Mm. as an example so I think when it comes to DNA it's actually quite tricky when you think culture I think from our perspective something that we go back to the high performance review and I'm I'm sure Omar will have some examples related to this as well because it was an interesting session but one of the first stages we got the expert panel together which was people from across sport and Dave Brailsford was was one Mm -hmm. of the the experts on that panel session and and he talked for a little bit of time around some of his experiences in 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 cycling or racing and and he talked about this he drew a quadrant up on the on a flip chart and I won't try and remember every single bit of it now because I'll probably get it wrong but ultimately what he was saying he was talking he had of the quadrant, you know, one axis was kind of winning or not winning or losing or whatever you would call it. And then the other was almost like style. So he basically said that what you want to achieve is what he called top right racing, winning with style. Winning without style is still okay. Uh, but, it, but it's winning without style. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure Spurs even get into that. Uh, and then there's... The- which quadrant are we in? <laughs> no, we're we know. I mean, I'm wrong. We are losing with style, aren't we? Most of the time. That's that's that. That's the history. Spurs, yeah. That's yeah. The history. <laughs> but then there's losing with style, losing without style, right? So we talked a little bit about that, but he talked about top-right racing. And actually, I remember myself and Rob Key both reflecting on that session and going, we had just appointed Brendan McCullum. 
and we just went top right racing. That makes sense to us, actually. Uh, and Rob tried to do a version of explaining that to Brendan. I don't think Brendan really enjoyed the quadrant, but he got the he got the concept of That's interesting. actually the it's it's the way you play as well. And and we've seen with Ben and Brendan being such a powerful leadership dynamic that we want to make sure that we do win with style. Actually, it is important. It goes back to all the things that Omar said around the product, and and even what we're trying to do now through the pathways, make sure that you know our Lions group when they come out to Dubai in a few weeks, and we're running a camp out there, that they start to get that understanding of our equivalent of the top right racing. And for for a sports business audience who might look at that and think it's indulgent, you know, it's, you know, why do you need to worry about it? But it does matter. You think of all the great teams that have succeeded and succeeded commercially, it comes down to doing it in style. Um, it comes down to, to winning in a way that people remember and, and they kind of create a legacy. So It's only relatively recently that the All Blacks would be described as entertaining, though. They, are, they have always been ruthless winning, a winning machine. But it was always a fairly doer. Yeah, I, I, I'd say maybe the most valuable sport, valuable, not necessarily in terms of revenue, but sheer value, the Brazilian football team is kind of the most yeah. iconic you know, winning with style, playing with style, and you think, well, if, if Brazilian football's got lots of issues as it relates to its commercialization, but it's got the value there because it's got that brand and identity. Yeah. And, you know, if, if England, you know, the way Ben Stokes played that knock at Headingley, um, you know, yeah. if, if it was just kind of ground out over five days, I think that match was over in three days, you know, that that's what captured the imagination, the ability to hit that four of Pat Cummins, you know, all that it has, has value. And I think... Again, from the commercial side of sport, you have to appreciate that and understand that you've got to invest in that to do. You've got to empower people to do that, and you've got to understand where. I think that's a fa- it's a fascinating thing because actually you're getting into sport as entertainment. You know, you're you're into that sort of conversation, and the choice of coach, and you know, the it almost becomes a brand, and it become that becomes part of the decision making process, and you the end of that pathway is the sort of Galacticos type thing you know and again I don't want to make everything about Spurs but you know immediately when a manager is is appointed whether or not it's going to you know where how it will end the story of how it will end is obvious it he wasn't playing to the cultural sort of history of the site you know so Pochettino is a is a good manager Mourinho Conte less of a good fit George Graham bad fit all of those you know you can see immediately and it's not about winning and losing and the I think it's if you don't win or lose and that's the point that Brailsford made that actually you might you can get away with either of the two winning options but it's when you don't lose what what sustains and what lasts and attempting to do it in style is probably the thing you want to try and do because Losing with style, people can get their head around, but losing without style becomes untenable, doesn't it? Uh, so that was the point he was yeah, making, yeah, actually, as yeah. well. Uh, but for us, it, it's been really powerful, but it, it takes a major disruption. The way Ben and Brendan have approached things this summer, and Ben in particular, he's even further on that extreme than Brendan is. Like he's got no interest in drawing a test match. <laughs> you know, well, I grew up loving watching Atherton grind out for a day and a half to save a test match. Like, and I tried to copy it. Uh, probably I was no good. But but Brent, uh, you know Ben's got no interest in that. We're winning this test match, and and that that disruption has been fascinating to watch. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm conscious of of our time, but um, and I knew it would. It went in lots of different directions. But I'd love to continue this conversation because it's it's so fascinating, so central. But it's also it's one of those specific things that 
people listening will you know recognize that there's so much universal truth there and and all the questions that we've covered are really relevant so omar thank you very much to you for your time and mo thank you very much for your time pleasure thanks